Greetings to all of you. And uh, I hope all is going well for everyone. Although that's not typically the nature of life. <laughs> uh, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Okay, let me see. First question that I have here is from Chris Bartos. And um, I don't I don't see Chris. I wonder maybe Yeah. Can Chuladasa, there's actually uh more comments than that. Um, there's one from Alexander Pfister and there's one from Maria Castro. Maria has been asking the same question for the last three meetups and hasn't gotten an answer yet. So we'd better answer her. We're in trouble. Okay, we better. All right. Alexander. Okay, yes. And then, uh, by the way, a couple of people asked, answered on the uh, November 30. Uh, there, there's another uh set of three questions from Jean-Michel Moreau, uh, Taylor Dukes, and, and William Wallen, MD, uh, which are not in the set of questions that you'll see under the thing you're looking at. So when you get to the end of that, if you do, you want to switch to the next one. Okay, so I should, well, let's see. If we're doing the most recent first, I should probably do William Wallen's. No. No? Um, so uh, I, I, I very deliberately asked people who had already had questions answered not to post their questions first this time. So all oh, of the okay. questions that you're seeing, uh, starting with Alexander, are questions from people who haven't had questions answered before. So you should start with them, I think. Great. Just all right. So <laughs> thanks, uh, Alexander. As a beginner, how do I handle intense trauma? during meditation from a very bad breakup or love sickness and hurt in general. Um, so, and this is from uh, uh, a beginning meditator. So, uh, what you, you can, what I'm sure is happening and uh, what, uh, it would be very typical in this case is that thoughts and emotions will arise every time you sit down and begin to meditate uh, as a beginner you know doing the the six step preparation for meditation will give you an opportunity to acknowledge that these things are coming up um, are, are going to come up and uh, so this this has this will help prevent resistance to them coming up and allow for more acceptance. Um, then I would, I would hope that the four-step transition, if you are really working well with uh, the uh, uh, attention and awareness and uh, directed or intentionally directed attention and spontaneously moving attention, uh, these things should be sufficiently uh, preoccupying to uh, keep whatever thoughts that do come up uh, that you can probably 
uh, allow them to be in the background. If they do capture your attention, then you know just treat it appropriately and go back to the process. By appropriately, I mean in the way that's described in uh, stage two. Um, now, it's when you get past uh, this state when you know you may have trouble getting a ten count, and if that's all you do is is as try to get to five or ten and and a meditation session without completely losing meditation object and getting lost in thoughts or emotions just just practice as uh, well first of all try to allow those thoughts to be there acknowledging them but not pursuing them so when you when you become aware that these thoughts and emotions are present, then acknowledge them. That might actually involve a momentary movement of attention, but uh, it's essentially what you're doing is you're, is you're uh, trying to keep your attention focused with this in the background. When it captures your attention, just uh, treat it the same way as uh, described later. This, this is, believe it or not, as long as you don't get into a struggle with these thoughts and emotions arising, this is actually going to conduce to a quieter state of mind and uh, perhaps allow you more freedom from these preoccupations. Um, and of course, over time, these things resolve themselves. But another thing that you can do, and um, even though it's at an intellectual level, is to, is to think of your experience in terms of insight and try to take uh, a more awakened perspective Granted that it's it's a, it's not coming from way down deep, but uh, what I mean by this is recognize what you already know that everything passes, including the the states that you feel. Everyone that's ever had a breakup in a relationship thinks it's the end of the world, but there comes a time in the future when they look back on that relationship and they say, well, I grew because of it. And not only that, uh, I'm better off now because of it. I'm either in a better, healthier, more wholesome relationship or, uh, or I'm doing, I am living my own life, doing my thing and I'm quite happy with that and so on and so forth. The impermanence of it. Recognize that where your suffering is coming from is your non-acceptance of the situation as it is. Um, and work on that. Accept it. Surrender to it. I don't know what work, word works best for you. Let it come. Let it be. Let it go. Let those feelings and thoughts arise. Uh, let them be there, but don't feed into them. Don't let them take you over. Uh, if they start to take you over, do something else. Uh, and just let them go when they, when they go. 
if to the degree that you find yourself paying attention to these things, you're feeding energy into them. So limit yourself to acknowledging their presence. Um, now, grief, loss, these are, uh, uh, these are self-centered, very self-centered emotions. And uh, as with depression and other things like this, the best way to deal with this is to get out of yourself. Focus on what, uh, what other people need, what you can do for them. Focus on other people around you. Get out of yourself as much as possible. Um, especially don't sit around by yourself no matter how much you feel like you don't want to interact socially just get out and and do something um, walk down the street and try to greet people and brighten their day whatever and uh it will pass so um, i hope this helps and i'm sorry you had to wait so long to get an answer to it actually it was the next one that was the long wait but Oh, the next one. Okay, Maria. Okay, yep. Maria. I'm glad we finally got to you. Uh, I really hope, oh, I, I think I'm looking for reassurance to my doubt more than anything else. I'm a mother of young children, and I felt for some time that this path of meditation is my intended way, and I feel very dedicated. Though I am far from enlightenment, stage three, worry about how the path may change me. I sometimes think being a mother is one of those nature things that truly work because of attachment and other primal instincts. I think I'm just looking for some reassurance that all of this is compatible and hopefully deeply beneficial for motherhood. Well, Maria, um, what, what I would like to assure you of is that uh, you your ability to love your children and others is going to increase. Now, um, there is, if, if, as one enters into fourth path, there's sometimes a temporary period where emotions seem not to be present, but they come back and your relationship to them is quite different. But, um, don't be concerned about that. You will still be perfectly capable of manifesting love, care, uh, compassion for your children. Now, uh, I'm just going to go back to the wording of your question here. The, um, uh, being a mother is one of those nature things that truly work because of attachment and other primal instinct. Exactly, yes. That's why those things are there. Those things exist, the, the attachment uh, exists, and the primal instincts towards uh, your children exist to uh, make sure that uh, mammals and other or birds and other organisms that uh, need to care for their young uh, do so, even though they don't have the kind of mental capacity that we have. You don't need 
to be attached to love. As a matter of fact, to the degree that you're attached, it can be problematic in terms of love. Uh, and especially as a parent, maybe not when your children are quite young, but the older they get and as they differentiate, especially in the adolescent years and start to become their own people, then your attachment can be a major problem. It could only make your relationship with your children, your ability to guide them, your ability to help them better. It will only improve it. And love is not, love is something that is more fundamental than uh, other emotions and uh, instincts. Because, well, the love that we experience ordinarily uh, is is often in the nature of an emotion that is uh, uh, driven by these kinds of things. Uh, you know, we we form we because we uh, are uh, organisms that form partnerships for raising our children. You know, love is very transactional and it's very instinctually driven. But beneath that is something that is much more profound and fundamental. Uh, you could say that love is the nature of, uh, of being and it manifests in many, many ways uh, at all kinds of levels. And in a human being, uh, love, uh, love can go beyond attachment and that is the greatest love. And that is the, that going to be the kind of love that is best for your children and for yourself. So it is very compatible. What you're doing is you're removing some unnecessary uh, animal instincts that, were, that evolved and they got carried over into human beings. Uh, well, I'm sure early humans uh, probably, uh, you know, Still needed, uh, still needed these instincts in order to uh, carry out the appropriate behaviors of a parent. But um, the fact of this way that the Buddha has uncovered allows us to use the faculties we have to essentially allow our spiritual evolution to transcend our biological evolution all of those feelings are available, but now they are tools. They don't control us. They don't drive us to behaviors that are inappropriate. They don't cause us to suffer because uh, of our attachments and the way things turn out inevitably that, uh, you know, uh, your attachment brings suffering. So that's what changes. I hope this is helpful and reassuring. So, Ifim, I hope I'm pronouncing your name properly. Are you present with us today? Yes, you are. Good. Yes. Hello, everyone. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. All right. Uh, oops. All right. 
So I am practicing Samatha Vipassana meditation by instructions from TMI for about two years with, sorry for the noise, uh, with last year daily practice of about uh, one hour. Right now, most of the time is in stage five, some in stage six exercises. Last March, I've completed 10-day Goenka's silent retreat, right now starting to plan the next one. And I would really like to join a retreat by some teachers because of Vipassana organization, determination of teaching almost completely dry insight without a lot of detailed guidance. Um, can you recommend any particular retreats by teachers you trust or tell general advice on how to find monasteries or other places where I could possibly go on a reasonable budget or maybe online resources with advice for finding retreats. I'm living in Russia, so I'm mostly able to travel to Europe or Asia and hoping to find a place where I could practice Samatha Vipassana, mostly the way you describe practice or possibly have whole retreat dedicated to meta practice since I find it to be since I expect it to be very beneficial. Well, um, we're at a stage in uh, the, uh, the development of Dharma Treasure where um, retreat centers are being created and people are offering TMI retreats. Uh, I don't I I'm, apologize, but I don't really know um, where to recommend that you uh, go for a retreat in Europe. But um, if you're practicing TMI, uh, well, first of all, you might be able to find someone that's offering a meta retreat. Uh, so I'm sure you could probably search the internet and find that. that that's not unlikely that you'll find somebody doing a meta uh, practice retreat. But um, the problem with something like a Goenka retreat is there's going to be a lot of pressure upon you to do uh, exactly that practice. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, if someone discovers that you're not doing that practice, you will be asked to leave the retreat. And um, I, I suppose that uh, there's some ethical concerns there. And I would ag agree with you that it's a, that even though there is a, a bit of samatha at the beginning of a Goenka retreat, well, I can't. We, I don't think we can really call it samatha legitimately. It's some samadhi practice at the beginning of it. It is still uh, pretty dry insight practice. I think what you want to look for is, uh, and I, uh, we're in the process of posting names and contact information of all of our teachers and teachers in training. There are uh, quite a few of them in Europe. Uh, what you might be able to do is to find someone who uh, could uh, act as uh, a mentor or teacher for you. And in terms of a retreat, find somewhere 
where they will allow you to do whatever practice that you want to do. If they don't, you know, as with the Goenka, require that you do the practice that uh, that they offer. Now, I, I I know this isn't much help, and you're uh, you're only one of many people who are asking this question. So uh, uh, we we're trying to uh, we're trying to change that. We're trying to make more opportunities available for both finding teachers who are trained in the in using uh, the 10 stage practice and in retreat centers. By the way, there I know this won't help you, and uh, but there is now a TMI retreat center being created in Australia. They have 800 acres, which they're turning into a, a, an intentional community that will offer retreats. Hopefully something like that will happen in, in Europe or somewhere closer to you. Sorry, I can't give you any more specific information at this point though. Uh, next question is from Chris Bartos. Um, let's see. Doesn't appear that Chris is here, but yeah. all right. You'll hear the recording. My current practice is pretty consistently stage five, still working with subtle dullness at times, although sometimes I work in stage six on occasion when I'm feeling pretty alert. I've had a few experiences that I would describe as a brief period of absorption, pacification of the mind, along with feeling like I was meditating sideways. That isn't always pleasant and sometimes causes very mild nausea during meditation. Since then, which was only a few days ago, I've noticed a moderately strong tingling sensation on my arms, legs, parts of my face and head, along with periods of very strong flushing in the arms that resembles a deep sunburn. These sensations happen even when I'm off the cushion and I can feel these tingly sensations as I type this. I'm trying not to make a huge deal out of these sensations, although they do seem to sort of ground me in the present moment when I focus on them, and they make body scanning seem almost effortless. Uh, I'm wondering if this is a grade of PT, which grade it sounds like, and if it's normal in meditative practice to have this type of PT so early on. Uh, okay, so uh, this sounds taken as uh, a, a whole, this sounds like grade two, grade three PT, uh, and it's not um, common, but it's definitely normal for uh, uh, this kind of PT to uh, arise in stage stage six, uh, less commonly in stage five. But it it's an indication that uh, it's a very positive indication. And so, if you could treat it like that, you know, uh, don't be attached to it. Uh, don't pursue uh, these sensations. You say they do seem to sort of ground me in the present moment when I focus on them, and they make got body scanning seem almost effortless. Well, with the body scanning in stage five, where you're actually exploring 
well, this could apply to stage six too, but primarily to stage five where you're exploring sensations throughout your body in order to search for sensations that change with the breath, then these sensations will be part of what you're examining and that they make you feel more grounded when you focus on them, that's very good. But don't forget that the purpose of what you're doing here is to uh, make your mind more alert uh, by investigating these, by investigating the sensations in different part of your, parts of your body. So what you would like to be experiencing is that when you've been doing this body scanning and focusing on these sensations and you have that groundedness and you have uh, clarity and alertness that now you go back to meditating on the sensations of the nose and you'll still have that enhanced clarity of both awareness and attention and when it passes away you go back to 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 doing these things okay so in other words to sum it up it's a good sign that you're having pt early uh, because it probably most likely means that you won't have as severe uh, PT, I hate to use that word severe, uh, extreme, uh, strong, uh, those may be uh, more appropriate things, uh, because you're going, because you're working, what, what's happening is whatever the internal processes are that are associated with unification of mind uh, that produce these things and what you decide what you're describing here is the PT it is it, it is the uh, pacification of uh, the mind and pacification of the senses that are producing that it's a the rising of meditative joy as, as the mind becomes illuminated make use of it don't attach to it if it goes away don't worry it'll come back later on uh, by the way if if it starts this early and it goes away what it means is that the, uh, the way that I interpret it, and I, I have to say this is, this is a way I view it that makes it uh, easy to work with and give advice like this, is that um, as the mind unifies, energy is released, and as, as the uh, mind uh, begins to withdraw from uh, senses other than what you're actually focusing on as your meditation object. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, yes, the energy generated is, if it goes away, it means that, that the reorganization in your nervous system, or to put it in more classical terms, the channels, pathways, for which this enemy through which this energy flows the energy is finding those pathways and overcoming uh, the uh, what we might consider as obstacles to the free flow of energy so yeah it's it's uh it is earlier than usual but it's not uh it, it's not in any sense abnormal it is normal uh, and uh, make use of it in the body scan. Now, when you're getting into stage six, uh, you're probably 
going to be confronted with the challenge of keeping, uh, keeping your attention uh, exclusively focused when you're focusing on something other than the parts of your body where these sensations are strongest. Um, just regard that as an opportunity to, uh, to develop uh, strong uh, exclusive attention. Uh, what I mean by this is these, uh, you may be doing the, the body scan, you may have identified sensations associated with the breath. Some of these may be like the, uh, uh, let's see, well, you don't actually describe anything that sounds like energy currents, but those may come up. Um, but you may be, for example, going back to the nose and trying to practice exclusive attention to the sensations at the nose, but you find these other body sensations are uh, becoming distractions. Now, you don't want to eliminate them from, from your peripheral awareness, as, but you want them, you want them to be only in awareness, you know, and, and so that will be the challenge. But the effort that you put into holding exclusive attention on uh, one part of the body, like for example, the nose, without your attention going to non-breath related sensations elsewhere uh, is going to be good practice and is going to benefit you. I hope this helps. And we got to get some more questions for the people that are already here. <laughs> okay, that's uh, John Selwyn here. Yes, I am. Oh, good. Wonderful, John. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, so what you've asked. Uh, hello, Chuladasa. I have had an extremely unhappy childhood. I've suffered neglect and physical and psychological abuses. My mother was psychotic and my father violent. Uh, by the way, John, I can relate to that quite well. The only thing that I didn't suffer was neglect because the form that my mother's uh, mental problems had was uh, an excessive attachment, which is also uh, harmful. So I can relate to what you're saying. For the past 20 years, I've studied and practiced the spiritual path, mainly Vajrayana, but also Advaita and Zen. In talking to my teachers, instructors, and gurus from these traditions, I've gathered that until I can completely forgive my parents, I can't attain any realization but I feel as though it would be the other way around because as long as I have self-grasping, this self has too much suffering to be able to forgive. But if I could have a realization of anatta first, forgiveness wouldn't be a problem. I guess my question is, is it possible to come a stream enterer without having resolved all my past childhood traumas? All right, your question, well, I'm going to reread it. Is it possible to become a stream enterer without having resolved all my past childhood traumas? And the answer to that question is yes. But 
you will have to, uh, you will, and you would really want to um, deal with these as especially the strongest, uh, the most negative of these, you will want to, uh, to work with these, come to some kind of resolution and acceptance with it. Uh, whatever, if you, in my experience, I had decades of, of anger. I left home when I was 15 years old because of that situation. Then when I was, oh, let me see. I was probably, yeah, during my, during my 30s, I was doing uh, a lot of work with the Dharma. And if you practice the Eightfold Path, if you do loving kindness practices, um, and if in your meditation, now you've been practicing uh, Advaita, uh, maybe that's helpful. But one of the things that, uh, I don't know if you're practicing from the Mind Illuminated right now, but one of the things we've built into that, beginning with the last section of the overview where we talk about effort in uh, stage two, when we talk about noticing that there's no, that there is no um, uh, you that's in charge of your mind, uh, that different parts of your mind wear the hat labeled I at different times. Um, if you notice that uh, the training, uh, that your mind trains itself by you just repeating, by holding intentions and uh, repeating the simple activities that result in the mind training itself. I mean, this is from the perspective of you as someone who only forms intention. What the effect of that is to reduce, is to reduce the sense of self, uh, at least the aspect of self that gives rise to the sense of agency by having the direct experience that the mind can train itself all that the apparent you, the construct of you can do, is to hold the intentions, hold the aspirations. And through those intentions, your mind will carry out the appropriate practices as described. And so this will help to, uh, this will help to reduce the degree of self-attachment that you have. Likewise, as you go along, you will probably have experiences where even the sense of there being a separate uh, observer of things becomes uh, greatly decreased. That even it, in the experiencing of something, that there is only the experiencing and there is no longer the sense of, of uh, uh, you know, some some little guy inside your head looking out at the world through your eyes, and uh, uh, but those things happen prior to insight, and they prepare the ground for insight. 
they also, especially if you practice virtue, practice virtue the, uh, the, as part of uh, uh, the Eightfold Path, the way it's described in the appendix on uh, uh, a mindful review. You get the idea there. This will reduce attachments. It will reduce craving. The negative feelings that you are carrying around uh, towards your parents because of the abuses that you experience, these are these are cravings uh, and they are causing you to suffer. And you can, through the practice of sila, virtue, uh, not just right speech, right action, right livelihood, but also uh, the second limb of the Eightfold Path, right thought and right intention. By working on these things, consciously, intentionally, and mindfully, you can come to a place uh, where you um, you haven't necessarily uh, uh, eliminated or overcome or integrated all your past uh, traumas, but enough so that you are ready for uh, ready for and capable of insight, and that's what what's important. Uh, let me. There is a caveat around it. Well, first of all, a couple of things. A lot of this stuff is going to come up when you get to stage four, if you follow the 10, 10 stages. Um, if you get to stage seven, a lot more of it is going to come up. And you have to follow the instructions and allow those purifications to take place to the degree that uh, you become overwhelmed by them and you can't follow the instructions, then back away and perhaps seek therapy. Uh, as a matter of fact, just from the, uh, you know, being a, I, like I said, I can relate to this and uh, uh, I did do therapy. And so I came to a point where having not had any contact with my parents for over a decade, uh, them not even knowing where I was, um, I realized that I, for my continued personal spiritual development, I had to deal with this. And so I contacted my parents, I visited them, uh, I realized that they had changed. Uh, I was able to understand through not deep insight, but through uh, the study of the Dharma, that everything changes, everything is impermanent, and these two people were not the two people that I had been carrying around in my mind for all of those years. That, that they had changed, and I had changed. I was not the person that uh, had been abused. Uh, that was my experience. Not only that, because I understood, and this was from meditation, this is the other thing that happens in your meditation, is you become really, really aware that everything is due to causes and conditions. That, uh, you know, your, your mental activity is conditioned by physical events, and physical events are the result of mental activity, and some mental activities trigger other mental activities, and so on and so forth. You come to the realization, and this will serve you very well in many ways, but 
if you can come to the realization that what the, the appropriate feeling to have towards your parents is loving kindness and compassion because causes and conditions and especially ignorance is what led them to be who they were then uh, and who they are now. And, uh, and that because of ignorance, they didn't even know this and, and uh, that they were, you know, people who cause other people misery are miserable themselves. And so if you can come to a place of feeling compassion, patience, understanding, this will go a long, long way towards getting, uh, getting over uh, these problems. Now, the other caveat that I wanted to, to give you is, it is a really good reason to clear up as much of this as you can in your practice prior to the triggering of insight. If you trigger insight, true insight, then uh, there is a period, I mean, essentially those five insights described in the introduction uh, constitute a completely different way of viewing reality uh, than you have before. What they are is they're changing the programming of your mind at the most fundamental level. It's like replacing the foundation of a uh, tall building. It's not an easy or pleasant process. And, uh, but it can, it can be something that doesn't take very long and uh, is not that bad unless, and this, this is what happens when somebody begins to develop insight, stuff gets triggered, stuff comes up. And when you, if you have to deal with a lot of different unresolved neuroses and internal conflicts and, and trauma and things like that, all at once rather than one at a time, and this is what insight when it comes before you have resolved enough of this can do, this is the problem with dry insight because there's no opportunity for purification to take place. And this is why you, you see the description of what's called the uh, knowledges of suffering and the progress of insight described with words like fear, misery, disgust. Uh, because in, in the dry insight, you not only have this, let me call it an uncomfortable process of, of replacing your previous uh, worldview with a new one, but in order to do that, you've, you've, you've triggered all of these things to come up at once, and you don't want that to happen. So get therapeutic help, do practice the Eightfold Path, right understanding, the things that I was talking about before, loving kindness and compassion, replacing anger, hatred, resentment. This, this is uh, right, right thought and right intention. Uh, and practice virtue, practice right speech, right action, right livelihood. Practice loving kindness meditations, things like that. Prepare yourself properly. Uh, 
know, and then you don't have to resolve everything. You have to resolve enough to be able to experience insight and you have to resolve enough so that the process of insight itself doesn't become uh, uh, too, too uncomfortable so that it happens smoothly. Uh, and uh, after that, the things that you haven't yet resolved become much easier to resolve. So I hope that helps you. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's very good. Yes. You're welcome. Yeah. The process of getting the insight is really important and doing it properly is going to make a huge difference. The process itself, I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. So Martin Spearing, uh, are you with us? Well, we'll do the best we can without. Okay. Um, Martin says, I currently practice in stages four to six, sometimes seven, and often encounter strong dullness and fatigue in my sits, resulting from the demands of work and parenting. Thanks to TMI's instruction, I can quickly diagnose dullness and sometimes bring my energy level back up. However, often the dullness drowsiness is too strong, in which case, I try to work with it by observing the mind's activities, including hypnagogic images and thoughts and the aversion to a dull mind. In TMI, you say that continuing to practice with a dull mind still aids unification of mind, but I wonder where the, there's a point of diminishing returns and how to diagnose it when that's the case. So yes, there, with anything, there is a point of diminishing returns. And so, um, of course, to the degree that you can bring yourself out of the dullness and you get practice recognizing the dullness. Now, there's two aspects to dullness, which uh, it's in the seventh interlude, which comes after stage seven, uh, where we point this out. Up to, up to this point, we have framed dullness in terms of the moments of consciousness model as uh, a large number of non-perceiving mind moments. Okay, but, uh, and we have, we have described uh, the development of conscious power as converting those non-perceiving mind moments into moments of consciousness of, of the type of awareness uh, and attention. Uh, but what we, the point that we introduce in the seventh interlude is that another factor in this is the size of the audience. When fatigue or stillness or, or sickness, sorry, when fatigue or sickness uh, cause there to be a lot of non perceiving mind moments which get hijacked by different parts of your unconscious mind and produce hypnagogic imagery and things like that. Provided that you have, uh, that you have a relatively high degree of unification of mind, uh, when you say sometimes stage seven, then 
that that requires a significant degree of unification of mind, then you can practice the mindfulness in the sense of observing the mind that is dull because of fatigue. And uh, that is, that's what I, that's what I think, I think you've read that part and that's what you're referring to. You say that continuing to practice with a dull mind still aids with unification of mind. But the way that you can tell whether that is occurring or not is uh, that you can maintain through recognition of the dullness itself as, as clear a level as of conscious perception as you can. And when you find that it's, you can't sustain it, it's just going downhill further and further, that's definitely diminishing returns. Uh, you are in danger of conditioning your mind to be able to, to for you, you're conditioning your mind to feel as though it's permissible to uh, slip into dullness when you're meditating. Uh, if you have the unification of mind to observe the process of, of dullness when it's present, okay, then, then that's a, that's a, a different situation and that will, uh, that will contribute to continued unification of mind. But as soon as you lose that ability, then that's the point at which you're better off uh, getting some rest. Um, other things that I can just suggest that probably you're already aware of, but um, because of dullness and fatigue, uh, I don't know how much sleep you are able to get. And uh, I, if you're serious about the practice, I would examine my life carefully to see if there are things that I'm doing that could uh, uh, allow me to get more sleep, more rest. But for most people, except for night people, for most people, the brightest and clearest uh, time to meditate is shortly after you uh, awakened in the morning. And if you can meditate then, then uh, the problem will be, that will, that will be very helpful. Meditating in the evening after a busy and exhausting day, and especially if you're not getting enough sleep, um, that I can almost guarantee that those, those meditations are not going to last very long before you reach the point of diminishing returns. So uh, don't, don't focus just on what's happening in the meditation itself. Focus on your whole lifestyle and see if you can uh, improve things. Um, I hope this, I hope you find this helpful. Uh, Dominic? Dominic is here, good, wonderful, all right. Hello, Chunadaza. Yes. Okay. Do you hear me, sorry? I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Yes, sorry, uh, do you hear what I am saying? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's great. Yes, I'm going to read it. 
I am currently at stage four, after four-step transition to observing sensations at the nose and doing that for five minutes, it seemed like I switched to a different way of perceiving them, pulsating and vibrating. It also feels voluntary, uh, i.e. I can switch back to normal perception, but then the sensations are very weak. Reading descriptions from TMI, I'm not sure whether this is acquired perception of the breath or perception effects resulting from close following as described in later stages, or maybe something else. And I should return to normal perception and make it stronger with body scanning for a while. Um, okay, so the body scanning is the stage five factors. Okay, if, since you're here, can I, I'd, I'd like to ask you, when you say pulsating and vibrating, um, is there, is there clarity? Uh, I mean, are you moving from perceiving the breath as an ongoing cycle to perceiving individual sensations like the impact of the air, the movement of the air, coolness, warmth, change in temperature, change in the rate of movement, things like that? Is, is the, is that when you use the word vibrating too. So yeah, can you describe the kind of clarity and detail you're experiencing when this happens? Okay, I will. So uh, I, I try to observe the breath in a normal perception mode by observing beginning and pauses then also the sensations between the beginning and the end of the breath. Mm -hmm. and, but after a while, uh, what, what, what happens is that uh, the, those ordinary perceptions, sensations of warmth, of, of feeling of, of the air, mm -hmm. are kind of uh, overwritten by, by a pulsing, uh, uh, similar to a heart pulse. But 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 it's but it's uh, I, I checked as you advise in, in the book and it seems it is not uh, the heart pulsing, and also also it seems there is some voluntary uh, voluntarity in in it's it's like I can voluntarily perceive it slower or 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 faster, okay, okay? and and. Uh, after, uh, but I, I wouldn't say that uh, I have a perfect clarity mm -hmm. uh, of, of this perception. Okay. Then after a while, it uh, naturally uh, starts to pulsate faster and then, then it's more similar to vibrations. Okay, and so it's no longer clear as sensations or as, or as breath, it's just, it's, it becomes vibrations. Okay, well, it, it sounds like that you uh, may be uh, experiencing uh, uh, at an unusually early point uh, that uh, some of the effects of uh, following the breath closely as described in stage seven, but uh, it seems like your, your other uh, faculties uh, of, uh, are, are perhaps not uh, well developed enough for you to be doing that. Um, 
you know, to, it would be most appropriate for you to have a very clear experience of uh, what's described in stage six, which this, this doesn't seem to be, uh, before you allow that, um, uh, the following of the breath to begin giving rise to these kinds, sorry, these kinds of changes. So I would recommend uh, that you should switch back to normal perception. You said then the sensations are very weak. Work on making them stronger. So you say you're currently at stage four, but you're obviously moving towards stage five. You're doing some body scanning practices. And so that's exactly what you need at this point is, is that increased conscious power uh, is that uh, uh, decrease in the degree of subtle dullness that you normally sit down to meditate in. Uh, you, you, need, you need to do the work of stage five. And you need to come to a place where those breath sensations, instead of being weak, become really clear, sharp, vivid. And at the same time, you have, uh, you have introspective awareness of the thoughts and other things that are rising and passing away in your mind. So, yeah. So I would, uh, for some reason, your mind wants to jump ahead to a place which I don't think you're ready for and might not be good for you. So, so. Thank you, thank you. It, it was very helpful. So I, I guess it's the third option uh, in, in, in my question. Thank you very much. Yes, you're welcome. Welcome, very welcome. Okay. Um, Federico, are you here? Yes. Yes, you are. Wonderful. Okay. All right. Okay. In your last Q&A session, you made an illuminating account of Rigpa from Dzogchen. I would like to pose three follow-up questions. In your Q&A session in the TMI book, you explained consciousness through the notion of information exchange. In the conventional dualistic framework, there are two aspects to information. On the one hand, information can be interpreted syntactically, uh, i.e. as a structural complexity of an object, and even measured as such. In computer science, it is measured in bits, and in physics, in units of negative entropy. On the other hand, information ultimately requires a subject, someone who makes semantic sense of the information. Otherwise, information is synonymous with structural complexity. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. What is your non-dual interpretation of information? All right, that's, um, that's one of those fun kinds of questions. Uh, okay. So, I mean, this, uh, uh, this is like uh, uh, one of the things that we could look at this in light of is the koan, you know, when a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there, does it make a sound? Uh, and, of course, the answer to that is that Sound is something that arises in a mind that's capable of uh, 
uh, the mind of an organism that's capable of uh, detecting the sound and uh, interpreting it as sound. Do all of the other events take place that would take place if there was if there was an observer there to hear the sound? Well, the answer is absolutely yes. Now, looking at this example, would you say that uh, when a, an event occurs, like a tree falling in the forest, is information about that event generated? And I, I think you would agree that it is, and you would probably put it in the category of the structural complexity of an object. So everything that was uh, impacted in any way at all by the falling of that tree, it leaves its imprint and its imprint is information. Um, I think of it uh, this way, is that everything is information. What is happening in the course of time uh, is that more and more information is being created. Um, that information may or may not ever be uh, uh, reach the point of uh, there being a subject, a someone, a mind who makes semantic sense of the information. Now we can drop the whole someone thing, uh, but can there be uh, a another structure uh, uh, that uh, is able to take that data and derive the information from it. And uh, theoretically, we, uh, we can and we do to a certain limited extent um, discover the past through the information that's created. Uh, and then our mind, uh, then that information is uh, then uh, exchanged uh, with a, a mind and, and the different parts of that mind exchange and interpret that information. How they interpret it uh, will depend on the, the nature of, of that mind and the, and the type of being who that mind belongs to. Uh, I mean, of course, if there was a mouse in the forest when the tree fell, the mouse would hear the sound, there would be a sound. Um, and so therefore, in a very limited sense, there, were, there would be a transfer of information. Uh, the concept of a tree falling, et cetera, may be beyond the capabilities of a mouse of understanding. I don't know, I've never been a mouse that I can recall. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yes, if we look at, at um, information as being something that is continuously being created uh, and exchanged within a non-dual process. Now, I think the thing is that uh, duality and non-duality are not two separate things. 
there is duality and non-duality are also non-dual. In a non-dual process, such as suchness, such as the totality uh, of everything, if, if suchness goes beyond the totality of the, the universe that we can perceive, of course, but uh, within that totality of things, information is constantly being uh, exchanged and new information is being generated. What we call noise is, versus information, if we take data and we say, well, this is noise and this is information, it's what we call information is limited to either what we're interested in, and therefore if we're not interested in the rest, it's noise, all noise, or what we're capable of uh, producing that semantic sense of information from it, uh, you know, then our inability to do that renders that data into the category of, of noise rather than information. But ultimately, it's all information. And theoretically, there is the possibility of a mind that could derive a semantic sense of uh, 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 would derive information in that semantic sense uh, from from that data. So um, there are within non-duality uh, dualities. But if you think of uh, think of it as the flowing of a stream, okay. Now. Uh, there are various different currents that make up the flow of that stream. Uh, there are eddies that form where the uh, current actually flows backwards. Where there are objects in the stream, like a tree or a rock, holes form on the downstream side of the object. And a huge volume of water passes through those holes constantly. Uh, if you've ever been canoeing, you know, you could get sucked into one of those holes and it'll just hold you down there. Um, but uh, so within the wholeness, which is non-dual, it's interpenetrating, it's holistic, uh, a mind can uh, impose a separateness on various processes that make that up and describe the interaction between them. And that's really what the semantic sense of information is. There is information in the sense of structural complexity uh, that is throughout the universe uh, that uh, astrophysicists have uh, uh, taken, taken us back to the moment of the Big Bang. Uh, you know, paleontologists and geologists take us back uh, through the developmental history of life and of the earth itself. Uh, and uh, uh, detectives figure out who it was that uh, came in and pulled the trigger on the gun and things like that. So all the information is there. It only takes an appropriate mind with the appropriate abilities to extract the information. So. Uh, does that make sense to you? Does it answer your question, or did I miss the point? It was 
certainly very interesting and um, I've enjoyed um, your account. I, I, I just want to clarify that um, the, the main point of my question, I guess, uh, could be expressed in the following way. In artificial intelligence, they claim that they might create a conscious um, entity. Do you think if there's a model of the human um, brain in terms of mm -hmm. the information exchange, if there's a good model that somehow reproduces to, to a large extent, the, the, to, to the extent necessary to reproduce the essential uh, of the information exchange in the brain, if this is uh, created, will it have the consciousness, uh, uh, the, 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 the sort of mm -hmm. subjectivity, or it will be just a yeah. model that mimics uh, a, a human or conscious entity, but there's, which is empty from mm -hmm. the inside, as you see. Yes. Well, you used a key word there, crucial word. In, in the attempts, you know, uh, to define consciousness, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm fortunate to be located in the, in, in the home of the Tortoise Science of Consciousness uh, conference. Um, uh, let me just stop this thing. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, I love hearing all of these things, but I, essentially, uh, when it comes down to it, the, the definition of, of consciousness is really Nagel's that uh, there is something it is like to be whatever it is that you are. And what that comes down to is subjectivity. So the, uh, the, so, the so-called hard problem of consciousness comes down to subjectivity. Subjectivity is, uh, you know, it, it is absolutely necessary to have uh, memory at many different scales in order for a mind like ours uh, to function. If you were to build an artificial intelligence that was capable of acting like a human being, uh, it would, in order to function, and you can tell me whether you agree with me or not, but I believe that in order to function, it must have uh, all those different levels of uh, short-term, very short-term, short-term, medium-term, long-term memory, et cetera, to draw upon in order to carry out those functions. And if that memory content is part of the information that is being exchanged, then our, your artificial intelligence is going to experience subjectivity. It's going to, it's going to have the conscious experience of knowing that it knows, knowing that it uh, is performing whatever calculations to choose to make a choice between this action and that. And so, uh, yeah, there is a level of complexity that ne necessitates the kind of memory that will result in subjectivity. That's, that's the way that I think of it. Uh, thank you. 
I don't know whether I agree or not because I have no understanding, but uh, at least you're extremely clear. In fact, the, the second question is just another aspect of the same. So if you think it's a duplicate, then please skip it. Well, I, I'll just touch on it here. You, okay. In addition, I suppose some form of universal awareness, which in its rudimentary form is non-personal, has to be presupposed. Uh, panpsychism. Well, um, they, people use the term panpsychism in different ways. And, you know, if you take as your starting point that, that information generation is uh, uh, essentially uh, the, the basis for awareness and that uh, the exchange of that information is the uh, um, the exchange of that information is the basic process that we describe as consciousness, then information generation and information exchange are happening at absolutely every level. But that doesn't mean subjectivity is happening at every level. Subjectivity, yes. Yeah. So we basically answered that question. People who use the term panpsychism and by that infer that rocks have something corresponding to consciousness. Well, there are definitely processes that are of the same categorical nature as consciousness, with the exception of they don't have the mechanisms for subjectivity. Okay, um, but it it's yeah in terms of it. Uh, uh, being the basis of uh, an emergent phenomenon, uh, yeah, I think you can see the, the relationship quite directly there. So you can use panpsychism in that word, in, in that way, but um, I don't think it's a good idea because it always suggests that there's a kind of subjectivity that we associate with consciousness involved, but that only happens at certain levels. So, and then your third question was ultimately from a practitioner's point of view, what do you think is implied by experiencing Rigpa? <laughs> okay, that is, uh, that is also a wonderful question. I'll try not to go on too long because I want to get through more of these. Uh, there's a bunch of good questions here. Um, okay, uh, basically any experience is a construct of the mind. Uh, it is uh, a construct of the mind that appears in consciousness. Now, uh, the, what we would call experiencing Rigpa means essentially becoming or perceiving ourselves as perceiving ourselves and our consciousness as a part of this universal process and that you have to recall that you're not that you're always experiencing Rigpa you're not recognizing it when you do recognize it although you're still experiencing Rigpa what you are recognizing is a mental construct that is derived by inference by experience, by cumulative experience, 
especially spent in a state like Mahamudra Dzogchen, you, there emerges this understanding, at least within the limitations of the human mind, of this universal fundamental property. And you, uh, as I say, you're always experiencing Rigpa, but you don't know it. And when you do know it, it what you know is you, you, you're knowing a fact about the greater reality that uh, is impossible to experience directly, but that is uh, you're experiencing a mental formation that uh, attempts to represent that. And uh, I feel like that that uh, experience that experiencing in that sense that when it's based on the realizations that I've talked about. That that um, that experiencing Rigpa is a good description for it. I hope that helps. Y yes, thank you very much. At least I will have to reflect on everything you've said, but at least everything is very coherent. Uh, my take on your non-dual, as going back to the first and second question, my understanding of uh, your non-dual view is if um, something from the outside appears as a conscious entity. It couldn't be that from the inside it's empty because there couldn't be two sides of the same thing. That's right. Am I right? You're right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Stephen Cartledge. Under Stephen's here. I am here. Oh, wonderful. Okay, Steve. Yes, I see you. Nice to see you. All right. From stage six, according to the mind system model, metacognitive awareness results from the activities of the narrating mind. The narrating mind takes in, combines, and integrates information projected into consciousness by other sub-minds, then projects that back as a binding moment of consciousness. In most meditational conversations, the narrating mind is treated like the big bad wolf something to avoid or eliminate. But from reading the above, it seems to be an important part of the story. Please address the skillful way to work with the narrating mind in stage six. Be happy to do that. Um, there, um, there are a number of things that are being confused in terms of this. Um, the narrating mind corresponds to uh, manas, the seventh of the eight, eight Vijnanas in the Yogacara system. And uh, it's an absolutely necessary function of the mind. Um, now, treating it as a big bad wolf is, uh, is, is mistaken. Uh, so there's, there's, two, there's two sources of confusion. Uh, okay. Uh, some people think that because, because the discriminating mind interprets the output of the narrating mind as referring to a literally self-existent uh, I and to literally self-existent objects. The illusion, though, the fault is not in the narrating mind. The fault is in the misunderstanding of the discriminating mind. Uh, of of uh, almost the entirety of the of, of of the unconscious is 
has assimilated and, and is evolutionarily conditioned to uh, uh, associate that with, uh, or to, to mistake that narrative center of gravity uh, of the narrating mind as referring to a, uh, a self-existent I and self-existent object. So what changes, what changes is not the narrating mind, but the way that the discriminating mind interprets this. It's said that, you know, if we refer to the unconscious mind as the alaya, that the alaya rotates or turns or basically uh, now interprets uh, this in a very different way. The other confusion about the narrating mind that I've described is that uh, there's this internal, this sort of meaningless, pointless, internal self-talk that uh, is the source of a lot of our problems. Uh, we tell ourselves stories all day, and this is all arising. Uh, I, I mean, it's the stories we tell are really a large source of many of our problems. They reinforce uh, negative attribu uh, attributes. Uh, they clutter up our mind space. They do go away with meditation. Uh, this is what is uh, now in, in modern terms referred to uh, the activity of the default mode network. There's a default mode network that when the mind is not actively engaged in a task, then the default mode network kicks in and you get all this internal self-chatter. That's treated as a big bad wolf. Well, that's just what that's mainly due to is that the part of the mind system uh, that involves uh, subjective self-referencing, uh, storytelling, uh, reductionistic analyst uh, analysis of situations, and then uh, synthetic constructions. Uh, I mean, that's generating the stories. It's, that's perpetuating the idea that we've got problems and things like that. And it's just, it's not functioning in a coordinated way. It's just like, all of this stuff is just coming to the surface as of consciousness as noise when the mind isn't engaged with something else. So the problem is that the part of the mind that should be dominating when you when the mind is not task oriented is being in a state of open, full awareness and uh, attention gently moving through the landscape of awareness. And this is, this, this does describe a state that arises with awakening. And so people who, uh, well, people who confuse the function of the narrating mind with the storytelling, the storytelling passes through a, a, a part of the mind that converts things into verbal or imagery, uh, verbal form or, or uh, imagic. Or, you know, okay, imagery or words. And that's not the narrating mind. The information that it's doing it with originally came from the, from the narrating mind. But the function of the narrating mind is knit together our experiences in a meaningful and useful way. And we absolutely have to have it. And if it wasn't functioning, uh, then, then we'd be a, a, a total mess. Okay, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, uh, we'd, we'd be constantly losing track of, of what we're doing. 
because uh, it, it, we need that story of who we are and what we're doing in order to uh, function appropriately. Narrating mind is not the big bad wolf. Um, the mind chatter that comes when the default net, no, mode network is active could be regarded as a big bad wolf. Now, some people say that the default mode network is a problem, and that's a misunderstanding. It's the default mo no, mode network uh, doing the wrong thing, being basically being um, basically processing information from the wrong part of the mind. Okay, and the result is useless symbolic uh, thought. Okay. Uh, not more, more than useful, uh, useless, often very harmful symbolic thought. So it, that's the big bad wolf. Not the default mode network, not the narrating mind. Uh, and the other big bad wolf is the mistake that the discriminating mind makes by taking the, con the content that becomes conscious from manas, uh, the, the, the I consciousness, the self-consciousness and interpreting that information uh, as uh, as there being an actual self-existent I. Uh, that's all added in afterwards. Experiences happen, actions unfold due to causes and conditions. New experiences are generated. We cycle through the links of dependent arising over and over and over again moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, you know, on all these different scales, recycling through uh, from uh, consciousness and nama rupa through uh, the, the sense bases and contact and, and uh, uh, feelings and uh, uh, craving and uh, uh, attachment and reification through to, uh, through to action. And then our action brings us back to the beginning and then the, there's a new contact, new sense contact. That's going on all of the time, okay? Um, but um, yeah, I, th I think I'm starting to digress uh, a little bit too much on this, uh, especially if I wanna get through some more questions, but... Um, can I ask just quickly then the um, so the narrating mind as far as tor as as far as it being the mega cognitive awareness so is that like through um, from practice and uh, intention that it's being instead of using all the self talk then it's it's changing to be a, uh, a the the meta meta from the outside sort of looking at becoming the, the guardian of, of what that the, the, the narration is, or being, being aware of the narration, is that pretty? Yes, well, the role that the metacognitive, uh, or the, the role of the narrating mind in metacognitive awareness, see, we're training it, we're, we're, we're training the narrating mind to take kinds of information that it, uh, Previously, I mean, it, if you think about it, it does kind of occupy 
the uh, the vantage point, the metacognitive vantage point of standing to the side and above, and uh, assimilating what's going on uh, in front of it, so to speak, and then telling the story back. Now, uh, what you're doing is you're training, uh, you're training the uh, uh, narrating mind to include in its assimilations a much more complete picture of what's going on. And then this much more complete picture becomes available to uh, the discriminating mind. Um, it's metacognitive in, uh, uh, in the sense that the narrating mind provides the vantage point from which the metacognition happens. But it's further metacognitive in the sense that once this information is made available, it is, it, when it appears in consciousness, it is taken in by, other, uh, by all of the other parts of the mind system that are tuned into uh, what's happening in consciousness at that moment. And it informs them, and it creates the possibility for uh, tremendous alterations in uh, what happens next. Uh, it, it becomes a new and much more powerful causal factor in determining uh, the arising of thoughts, emotions, intentions, actions, and speech, so forth. And that's why the metacognitive introspective awareness uh, through this interaction between a more highly trained narrating mind and a much more highly trained discriminating mind uh, results in what the Buddha referred to as uh, uh, sati sampajana, clear comprehension. It's very helpful. Thank you very much. And I would imagine then that uh, it's, it's busy doing all that. It has less time for self-talk too. Yep, that's right. Well, usually what happens is the self, the there's a shift in uh, what the default node network is connecting into and projecting into conscious. There's a shift away from, uh, from uh, the process of, of taking the, what you might uh, use, the term you might use quite advisedly, left brain kind of functions. And it shifts to more right brain perception corresponding more closely to awareness. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, well, we're going over time as usual. I have a meeting at one, but let me see what we... Um, Jean-Michel, present. That's me. All right, there you are. Okay. So let's see if we can get another one down here and then we'll have to save the, the rest for uh, another catch-up session. I get so many good questions and of course I ramble on. It's combination of, the combination of your good questions and, and my tendency to ramble leaves us uh, in, in the situation of having to do catch-up Q&As all the time. But they're fun. So, okay. Jean-Michel. I get creepy crawlies, uh, also known as samadhi pain. It's an interesting term. I hadn't heard that one before, but it's yeah, appropriate. Intense term. Yeah. When doing stage five, 
full body breathing. I'm usually practicing between stages four and six. It only happens when I cover a large portion of my body, but not when I'm doing just the hands or just the feet. Usually this makes me stop the meditation early at around approximately 45 out of a planned 60 minutes. Usually it feels like intense vibration and tingles, not exactly like prana. Upon close examination of these sensations, it doesn't actually hurt, but nonetheless, my mind is revolting. I'm tempted to avoid full body breathing. Uh, question is, what should I do? Should I keep at it, do smaller swaths of the body to avoid triggering, triggering the crawlies, or do something else like metta for a while? Uh, let's deal with that question first. First of all, yes, I would say, you know, uh, when you're in stage stage five, uh, push the limits of this just uh, enough that uh, some of these sensations begin to arise. But remember the objective of the body scan in stage five is to increase the power of your consciousness, the clarity, vividness, and intensity of perception, both in, of attention and uh, awareness, uh, which is uh, also stated as a uh, decrease in sustained dullness uh, and uh, an increase in the power of mindfulness. So that's the objective. And as long as that objective is being uh, achieved by, by practicing the body scans on somewhat smaller parts uh, of the body, if you, when you come back to the nose, you have an experience of uh, very heightened conscious power and clarity and intensity and vividness, then that's fine. You don't need to go farther than that. However, it'd be really good practice for you to go just enough farther than that that you get, that you get the opportunity to practice um, um, just letting these sensations be in your awareness uh, while, you, uh, while you keep your, your focus on the sensations that you are intentionally the parts of your body that you're intentionally focused on. You see how this, this seems very similar to a question I answered earlier. So that's what I, I would recommend. Now, this latter part might allow you to uh, uh, eventually achieve uh, whole body breathing. Um, uh, just by pushing the limits, being able to be with it and let it, uh, you know, but not so strong that uh, the mind re revolts and you're uh, tempted to avoid full body breathing. Well, you don't need to do full body breathing, but it would be nice if you were able to. Because the point of the uh, breathing with the whole body in stage six is actually to develop exclusive attention or uh, what's called access concentration, uh, upachara samadhi. Okay, um, so um, so as long as you're accomplishing that, then the, then it's not a problem. But a part of that, a part of achieving exclusive attention, is going to necessitate allowing sensations to be in the background, without without them, uh, without attention alternating with them. So, in other words. It's a great opportunity to, to practice that, and it may be that you do reach the point of uh, uh, being able to do the whole body at once. 
comfortably enough that you could do the whole body jhanas. Which leads to your second question, when practicing stage six and attempting jhana, should I try other methods like metta to get to access concentration? Well, you certainly uh, might, might do that, yes. Uh, uh, depending on how your development of access concentration goes though, you could defer jhana to uh, stage seven and uh, uh, with the pleasure jhanas. And I, I think you're much likely to experience this particular problem there. But um, yes, uh, metta is used for entering jhana and you could certainly practice metta as a means of doing that. The advantage of metta in stage six is that it introduces the mind to a much more uh, 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 direct uh, experience of uh, being in a flow state. It makes it easier for the mind to enter that flow state. Uh, it also helps to train the mind to recognize uh, the effect of unification of the minds that are actively uh, exchanging information via consciousness at, at any time. So if you feel like the jhana is going to help you and you can use metta to access concentration or to, 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 to uh, yeah, to get into jhana, then go ahead and, and do it that way. But always come back to the fact that you're going, what ultimately you want to do is to be able to go back to the nose and have access concentration there, whether or not you use it to enter jhana, okay? Thanks, that makes sense. So you're saying just go a little bit, uh, but don't jump all the way into the full body if it, if it makes you freak out. That's right, yeah, exactly, you got it. That's good. Thanks. Okay. Um, I know I should quit here, but there was one question that I really wanted to answer. If Steve, Steve Ross is here, uh, I know he might not be here. I think it's an important question for him personally that, that I would like to address. Steve is not here. So I'll, I'll, make, I'll try to make this fairly quick for Steve's benefit. Uh, okay. Okay, Steve asks, uh, I'm having trouble wording this question which is related to living wills and end of life issues. Would a do not resuscitate uh, part of a living will or a standalone document be against the precept of harmlessness, in this case to oneself, or inter with, interfere with or be in possible conflict with fulfilling karmic obligations? Should a practitioner even have a DNR? I imagine there are a number of older practitioners like myself who would be interested in this question. Uh, I might not be online to hear your response, but we'll check the video. So that's why I'm doing this for Steve's sake. Steve, by all means, uh, a DNR can be, can definitely be uh, appropriate. What's important about it is the intention behind it in terms of fulfilling karmic obligations and things like that. Now, um, usually I have, I have a DNR and uh, and the reason that I have it is that I do not want to be a burden on other people, okay? Uh, 
Um, you know, uh, it, it's not a kind of suicide. It's, it's just saying that I don't want extreme measures to be taken so that I'm going to be some kind of severely invalid, possibly vegetative uh, being that is going to be a huge burden on other people. Now about harmlessness. It's absolutely impossible to live in this world without uh, being responsible for some harm. Uh, you know, we cause harm to, to just, just through eating, through all of our activities. The way we could look at it is in this world, there's a certain irreducible level of inevitable and unavoidable uh, pain, suffering, and harm that, you know, the only way that that would disappear is if the kind of realm that we live in ceased to exist, if there were no beings to experience that. So the moral question of, of doing harm comes down to not doing anything that knowingly will uh, increase the unnecessary and avoidable suffering uh, in the world. And better yet, to do something which will reduce the unnecessary and avoidable suffering in the world. And that's exactly the purpose that a DNR should serve, is to, to refrain from these kinds of issues like uh, our, our dear friend uh, uh, Allegra had a stroke on uh, November 1st, or well, I guess she was on October 31st, but uh, she died on November 1st. Um, she, they wanted to, she was developing pressure in her skull. They asked her if they could drill a hole to relieve the pressure, and she said no. And it's because she had discussed this and thought about this for a long time that she, when she ceased to be able to be of service to others and when, uh, when it would be a question of being a burden to others instead, that, uh, that she, she, wanted, she would do this. So if, you're, if your purpose in a DNR is, uh, is, if your intention comes from that place, then that is a very wholesome place. Uh, so I hope, hope this helps. I hope it helps a lot. Um, so anyway, for all of you, thank you very much for sticking with me for this long, those of you that did. And we will catch up with these other questions a bit uh, later on. I'm not sure when. Uh, so anyway, thank you. Blessings to you. May you all thank you. be happy. Thank you. Thank you very much.